This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. 5 p.m. this Friday, the January 6th. The January 6th, January 6th. I'm Guy Johnson in London, alongside Alex Steele over in New York. You're listening to The Cable. Uh, we have made it to Friday. It has been a bumpy week thus far. Uh, and today, certainly no exception. European equities absolutely flying. We're seeing a similar thing on Wall Street. Uh, we saw inflation coming down in Europe, but core inflation rising. So headline down, core rising in the States. We've seen a really, really quite a sort of series of solid uh, employment numbers this week. The payroll number today really quite good. But what happened today was that within that day, so wages went down and the market, Alex, has reacted in an extraordinary way. Yes, equities are higher. But it's bond yields where the real story is. Bond yields are dropping massively. Yeah, it's been really interesting because after the jobs number, it was status quo. You did get a big spike in bond yields, and then we kind of moderated. Equities were higher, and then we kind of moderated. But then an hour, a couple hours ago, we got the ISM services data, fell below 50 for the first time since May of 2020. So rolling over, yay, services rolling over, but also not falling out of bed, not terrible. And then equities just ripped, bond yields tanked. And that's kind of the story here. Is my, my takeaway is solid and slow. Solid and slow, meaning what? I, the, 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 the economy is still solid, is but solid, it is slowing. But it is slowing. Yeah. And that's good news or bad news for the Fed? How does that kind of I position us? I think? I think it's a good news. Well, at least the market's taking it as a good news situation, that maybe they can downshift, they don't have to do as much. But I mean, I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying it looks like that's how the market's interpreting it. Yeah, I think the sense seems to be certainly that the Fed can now, on the back of some of these numbers, downshift to a 25 basis point hiking cycle. Uh, the question is now, how long does that continue? Anyway, we'll debate that in just a moment. We have much to discuss inflation data here in Europe, uh, the payroll data over in the United States alongside the ISM services. We'll do that with Marcus Ashworth in just a moment. Before we get to Marcus, though, here's Charlie. With the I thank you very much. And here's what's going on, Guy Johnson. The boss of one of Britain's biggest transport unions is calling for coordinated strikes involving tens of thousands of public sector workers, including teachers, firefighters, and nurses, just as junior doctors consider joining the wave of industrial unrest. Michael Lynch, General Secretary of the National Union of Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers, says, quote, we need to maximize our influence and leverage up across hopefully everyone that's involved in a dispute. France, meanwhile, is ramping up the availability of its state-owned fleet of nuclear reactors after months of extended outages and a sign of relief for Europe as it battles a historic energy crisis. And the UK is said to be set to reduce the level of support that it gives to businesses to help them with their soaring energy bills by 85% from April. This according to The Telegraph. Citing sources, the newspaper said British firms currently benefit from a six-month program of energy aid ending in March worth $18 billion pounds, which is due to be replaced by a 12-month package worth $5 billion. The Treasury declined to comment on the Telegraph report. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Charlie will be back in around 30 minutes' time to continue to keep us updated. Let's talk data now, because it has certainly been the story of the day. We're going to start with Europe, the Eurozone. CPI inflation data out a little bit earlier on. Now, at a headline level, Inflation comes down quite sharply 
in December. We come down from 10.1 to 9.2. Economists were expecting 9.5. But here's the kicker. Core inflation, which strips out energy, actually increased. Increased from 5 to 5.2. And the fear now is that that is the number that the ECB is going to focus on. Despite economic deceleration, the ECB is going to focus on that data and continue to hike hike reasonably aggressively. Let's get Marcus Ashworth's take, Marcus Ashworth's take on this. I can't speak tonight. Um, it's been a long week. It's okay. Uh, it's right. On this, it's yeah. Speaking is hard, as Alex Steele would say. Mm-hmm. Um, Marcus, which of those two numbers should the should should Christine Lagarde and Co be looking at? Well, it doesn't matter what I think they should be looking at. Is what they unfortunately going to going to be looking at. And you're right to emphasise the core, but I think that's the wrong way to look at it because the fact that the headline is dropping so much is going to uh, front run everything as it did on the way up, it will on the way down. And by focusing myopically on the core without you know, looking through these numbers, the ECB is running the risk of making yet another policy error. And you know, I think inflation is starting to dramatically turn down in the States. It's, it's clearly now on the same uh, trajectory in Europe. Uh, one of these days you might get it in the UK, you never know. Um, but the point is, is that with the forward-looking indicators, we can see the oil price, the gas price. This is going to carry on going on. We're seeing stickiness in services, particularly in Europe, and industrial goods, that's non-energy-related industrial goods, as you would expect. Um, you know, food prices a little bit firm. I mean, you've got food, alcohol, tobacco, 13.8. That isn't great. I appreciate that. But they will come down because what's dro- what drove them up in the first place i.e. energy prices, have fallen like a, like a rock and will continue to fall like a rock. Now, we we're building inventory in gas uh, in, during the winter months, unheard of. So as far as that's concerned, I don't think going into next winter or even throughout the next rest of 2023, I think anything like the same pressure or problems we're going to have as we did in 22. That's a big thing for me to say, but I'm pretty confident Can that I... as far as the energy crisis is mm-hmm. concerned, it's basically over. Well, okay. Fair enough. But my question is the core part of the inflation read. That's not going to be energy. Where in the core did we see the stickiness? Like, how how are you convinced that that services. part's going to roll over? Well, services is up you know, a little bit. Overall, the, the core is up, but it's up very small amount. I mm-hmm. mean, that's what gives me the confidence that is that we, we're, we are going to see it roll over. It's going to take some while. People will fret. But that's the reason we have a thousand plus economists sitting in those towers in Frankfurt to try and see these things ahead of time. You know, we know how inflation works. We, we were expecting core to lift. It has lift. The fact it's it's starting to sort of, you know, yep. not accelerate in quite the same degree is it's going to by the, you know, by the summer that will, it will have turned down and we should be able to look through these things. I'm not saying that means cut interest rates. I mean, don't load on 50 after 50 after 50 in hiking because you're going to push uh, Europe into recession. And what, then what's, we will have deceleration and deflation. The market's currently thinking, or the, the, the kind of the expectation is 3.5 is where the ECB kind of tops out. How far above, kind of, where does a policy mistake start? Is it 3%? Is it 3.25? Is it 3.5? What, what do you think the right number should be vis-a-vis that 3.5? I mean, seriously, I think that... Uh, so they just stop now? Well, and actually, I think they should be stopping certainly no more than another 50. Uh, I expect them to probably do possibly another 100 from here. I think that will be a mistake. I think they'll realise it quite quickly. If they were talking about another 150 to 200, as some people, some of the 
more hawkish ones, I, I think it would be an absolute disaster for the European economy. You've got to look at things like money supply, it's collapsing. They are, they are not just hiking interest rates, they're also collapsing the balance sheet with regards to the super cheap loans in the banking sector, and they're doing QT, just as everyone else is really building up in QT. The Fed's QT is really starting to accelerate, and we know what the Bank of England are doing as well. All this combined means it drains money globally, and mm-hmm. I'm not sure the European economy particularly can handle it. And at that wonderful note, I'm going to say goodbye, Guy. <laughs> He's running to catch a train. Um, so next week, back to normal. So you say. So you say. I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, good luck getting home. I know it was a terrible train ride in. So good luck. Have a good weekend. And we will see you uh, on Monday. Marcus, you're sticking with me just for a bit. Um, so then how does that compare to the Fed versus the ECB? If the economy gets tough on both ends, will the Fed be more able to cut than the ECB will or vice versa? Well, I mean, the Fed is is in, a, is in a better situation, always has been and will continue to be. Um, I, I do think there are some quite clear signs of, uh, of, of so we say, flashing amber recession signs in the States. Really? Even um, after today's may... data? Yeah, I think that I think there is some, some particularly in ISM services. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's also uh, some of the shift in wages is very interesting to me because it looks to me like we're, getting, we're broadening out. It's, it's a change in the wage uh, market away from high-end, high-bonus jobs to filling out lower-paid, uh, less remunerated jobs, um, which is both good and bad, depending how you want to look at it. Mm-hmm. But certainly, as far as the Fed's concerned, I think there's some some positive signs. It doesn't have to worry so much about wage inflation, but that's because the economy is definitely softening. I think it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to get a recession in the states, but they're going to flirt with it. I think. Mm-hmm. But this is all good news for the ECB because the Fed turns over quicker. And, and the, until the Fed starts going down to 25 and then the Fed pauses, mm-hmm. until then, the ECB can't give up. And I oh, hope I for the ECB that the Fed front runs them and makes their life easier. So basically, the Fed will be able to stop before the ECB, and that will give the ECB a lifeline to stop hiking Correct. into weakness. But the Fed has to stop hiking first. Now, to me, the data, though, says, OK, slow but solid, but like what I said in the beginning of the program, in which case it feels like maybe they can downshift to 25, for example. Would that help at all? Yeah, I think. Yeah, definitely. I, I think. But I just don't think the ECB can do it mm-hmm. until the Fed does it. Until that's, the, that's the, the Fed totally has to stop. 50 or, or 25 doesn't really matter. Well, no, no. The Fed goes to 25. The ECB can think about doing 25. Mm-hmm. The Fed goes to, to stop. Then and only then can the, can the ECB. Because bear in mind, they started late. They started in July this year. Uh, and from a much, much lower level. But, you know, yes, they've got some catching up to do because their inflation was rate was a lot higher. But, you know, we just got to realize the European economy is not like the US. It doesn't have anything like the strength. And it really does not need to be whacked into recession because that will drag inflation down to, to as I mentioned earlier, we're going to start talking about deflation if they're not careful. So let's go into we're going to touch more on the jobs data and what it means for the US. But I do want to get your take before I let you go, because, I, you know, I got to I got to send you off on your Friday in about five minutes. Um. When when you take a look at the numbers for today, it, it it does feel like this could start setting the stage for a soft landing. Wages slowing a bit, unemployment rate still perplexingly low, even though more people are coming into the labor force. It feels like this is a new kind of Goldilocks. This is what everyone's kind of been saying the last few hours. Do you agree with that? Well, yes, ish. I mean, and that's why. I mean, I, I, I I'm not surprised to see that the, the front end collapsed so much because it, it sort of needed to really because it was mm-hmm. it's overpriced. But it's telling you. But whatever Kashkari wants to say at 5.4 terminal, that ain't happening. I don't think we'll get to five. Hmm. And I think that's not just because the dynamic of the Fed FOMC makeup has changed. 
you know, four more, much more dovish voices coming in. But I just think, you know, you can see very clearly inflation has turned in the States. Yes, of course, everyone's worrying about the next thing, which might be, for instance, core inflation, or it might be, you know, labor, you know, wages. But I mean, these are, are sort of secondary concerns. The worst is over. It may last for longer. Yes, mm -hmm. there is a risk we could get a, a second upsurge in inflation, et cetera, et cetera. But that, that's telling me time to pause, not time to keep on hiking. And, and not time to cut either, hence the pause. And that's what oh, no, the guy no, was bringing up too. What's that? Forget cutting. I think you yeah. know, we, we've got a long way to go, but it will come at some point, possibly by the end of the year. Well, but the, and that brings up the point that Guy kept talking about um, on television, which it, which is an interesting one, that if you wind up having a low uh, jobless rate and consistently low jobless rate, so you three under four, for example, when if inflation does wind up coming down, A, is that even possible? And B, does that automatically look at inflation resurgence? Once growth picks up, if unemployment's so low, boom, higher prices again. Uh, I, I don't see it because of the labor participation rate. I mm -hmm. don't see it because, you know, there's five million missing people, uh, you know, out of the, the workforce, you know, proportionally, um, you know, in a sense of be that part of the immigration change since the pandemic. But there is five million, you know, washing around in, yeah. in the system, which which haven't sort of shown up, should we say, in the labor data. There's, there is more slack in the U.S. employment market, I think, then the Fed is prepared to admit it. Won't mm. admit it, but I'm certain it's, it's aware of it. And it's exactly the same what's going on in the UK. Well, that's interesting. So there is more slack. We're just not really seeing it yet. Yeah, and I think that's where we're starting to see, you know, pick up on labor participation rates from time yep. to time and things like that. There, there, there are some stuff. It looks horrifically tight and it looks a nightmare. But, you know, we're seeing a rollover in, in, in wages. That tells me that there is, and, you know, other things coming down like uh, jolts and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. there, there, you know, it's... Definitely a very firm market. It's a great, great economy in that sense. But there is a lot of other signs showing that in the next few months there will be, uh, should we say, some give in the labor market. And the, finally, that that uh, unemployment rate will rise up. But by that stage, it's sort of too late. You know what I mean? Because yeah. that's when you, you're talking into, into recession. So before I let you go, um, we were talking about um, the bond market. And clearly, it definitely seems like the U.S. is leading the big moves in the bond market. You're now looking at the two-year yield down 17 basis points. You mentioned some of that's going to be re-rating because there'd been a sell-off in the bond market. How much more do you think this move has right now? That's a very searching question. Um, <laughs> I don't know is the honest answer. It's clearly got some momentum behind it. It's clearly the market is repricing for um, a Fed terminal rate way lower than the Fed's still trying to talk about. You know, we're talking mid fours, should we say, rather than, than fives. And that's something which, you know, is it, probably driving everything. Um, probably we've got a little bit more to go on that. Personally, I think with the uptick in, in quantitative tightening, the debt ceiling debate coming up, uh, a raft of new issues is going to come out. I think it's going to hit into some quite heavy headwinds, this, this, this current rally. I don't think it will last forever. And we will have, you know, we're in a range and I think we will tick back up, up again. But we may have a little bit further to get to the downside first. And, which th and with that, Marcus, I let you go enjoy your weekend. Thank you so very much for helping me out this week when Guy was dealing with the train strikes. I really appreciate yeah. it. Marcus Ashworth of Bloomberg Opinion. Um, coming up next, we're going to take a look at Shell. A, because it's oil and I get to talk about it and Guy's not here. And also did a trading update. Really interesting. This is Bloomberg. 
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson's running to catch a train, so he's not here, so I get to talk about oil. Um, in particular, Shell. So the stock over in London closed up about 1.6%. Um, we had some news today. The company said its gas trading earnings were, quote, significantly higher in the final three months of 2022, as the unit uh, did really, really well and overcame some of the challenges that it had earlier in the year when it comes to its trading unit. We also saw a lot more about what they said about LNG as well as production, and we'll get to that in just a moment. So joining me to break it all down, Bloomberg Renewable Energy and Climate Change reporter Will Mathis. What did you make of the um, gas trading earnings? Yeah, so it it looks like um, they figured out whatever was going wrong in the third quarter when, you know, the third quarter was great quarter for Shell, but the trading, gas trading, you know, they'd gotten some bets wrong. And while BP and Exxon saw gas trading really, you know, send their profits up to um, really incredible levels, Shell was kind of the back of the pack there. And they said that they had some, you know, they made some bad moves, and whatever happened was figured out. And mm-hmm. it looks like it's back on track in the fourth quarter. So, what's the outlook for this year for the company? Because as a new CEO, which is a huge deal, I'm going to say the name wrong. Whale Swan, is that correct? That's yeah, that's that's pretty good. He's well, like, Al it's Swan. close enough for you. We'll give it a pass. Um, so he took over just a few days ago. Uh, so this is going to be a big year. Um, what's in store for Shell? Yeah, he took over and he was previously running the gas unit. So that's, you know, investors will be happy to see that, you know, the the spot where he was previously in charge is is doing well. And what's in store for them? I mean, global energy markets were extremely volatile last year, and it's very likely that that's going to be the case again. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have factors like potential recession. You have China reopening or trying to reopen that could see a lot of new demand if that, you know, uh, does does come around. And you also have, you know, the war, Russia's war in Ukraine continuing. And that's, um, you know, gas flows from Russia to Europe have, um, you know, fallen incredibly and could completely stop um, other than LNG. And that's just going to continue to add volatility that companies like Shell can take advantage of and also potentially send prices back up later this year. Um, so do, do companies like this like the volatility? Like, does it help them make decisions because they can benefit from these price spikes, for example? Or does it make their job of hedging, of where they allocate? Does it just make that really hard for them? Definitely, they like when the price goes up a lot. Yeah, they like that part of it. <laughs> it doesn't cost them more to, you know, pump the oil and gas out of the ground. And, you know, a company like Shell, um, especially with gas, you know, they're one of the biggest LNG, um, uh, you know, ha- have one of the biggest LNG businesses. You know, they helped start that trade, you know, year, years ago, and it's really paying off now that LNG is in such high demand in Europe and prices have, you know, reached record levels, and, and that's that's great for them. And with volatility, you know, it lets their trading uh, desks really shine if, if they can and, mm-hmm. um, you know, make a lot of money. Yep, fair enough. Um, in terms of how Shell is positioning, 
for the future. I was having this conversation um, with someone earlier that uh, there's this chronic underinvestment in the oil patch, yet we still need oil and gas. We know this, right? But the the real money going forward for these guys isn't going to be made in renewables. They're going to have to buy the assets just because to say that they have them. But also, the real money is going to be made in power and the money in power trading. And you got to have the renewable assets to then trade in that market. But that's going to be the real money maker and the real differentiator. What are you hearing in relation to how these guys shape up going forward? Yeah, well, they are figuring it out. <laughs> they, you know, I think that that's a big question for Shell. They are um, have some plans, at least in name, to you know reach net zero emissions by 2050 across their business. Mm-hmm. So. They want to grow in power and leverage their trading ability to make money there, but it's you know it, it is a question mark if they can translate their success with oil and gas into power. And if you look at um, you know the big renewables companies, they don't have the margins that mm-hmm. Shell has, and it's not really clear where Shell will be able to invent those 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 margins. Yeah. Um, in, in the meantime, the governments in the world have been sort of after nice, juicy profits from commodity companies. It's not necessarily just a Europe or a UK issue in terms of windfall taxes. This is kind of across the board. Um, how are they managing having to pay out more? Because I have to imagine if the governments are coming in and asking for more of their money, that's going to also raise their cost of doing business and raise their break-evens, which then creates a lot of other drama. Um, where are we with that? Well, in Europe and, and UK, you know, there have been windfall taxes imposed, and Shell said that its uh, 2022 um, windfall tax burden in the UK and Europe will be something like 2.4 billion dollars. So, you know, that, that's they, there's no way around that. They they have avoided some tax burden in the UK by making investments that offset how much they would have to pay, but they're they're going to pay that and, and continue. At least in the UK and potentially more in Europe, depending on what governments do to try and um, take profits from those companies that are really benefiting to help pay for the the pain experienced by the rest of their populations. Yeah, that's gonna be really interesting to see how this all uh, winds up playing out when Big Oil also runs reporting over the next few weeks as well. I'm obviously looking at Exxon and Chevron, totally talking my U.S. book uh, on that. So again, the news there: a Shell and its gas trading earnings were significantly higher in the final three months of 2022. So figured out any trading glitches um, that they had. Also, just a couple little highlights here: um, the output of their LNG liquefied natural gas in the fourth quarter was between 6.6 million and 7 million tons. It was sequentially a little bit down. They had some problems with some of their projects over in Australia, but still pretty solid. Their refining margins rose about 27%. Uh, percent. Chemical margins also did really well, and overall integrated production for gas uh, was up a little bit. All right, this is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. We're seeing a really powerful rally uh, continuing to gain some momentum here within the United States. About 93% uh, of S&P stocks uh, rise. You had slow but solid. That's how I'm categorizing it when it comes to the ISM services, below 50 but still strong, and jobs holding up even though wages coming down. 
Some might disagree, but that's at least how the markets are taking it. Yields uh, continuing their climb lower. Their climb lower? Can you climb lower? I don't think you can, considering their journey lower. How about that? Let's say it like this. That's a snapshot here in the U.S. Let's get some more with Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. Junior doctors in England will consider walking out for 72 hours in March as health unions remain at loggerheads with the U.K. government over pay. The British Medical Association says it will call the three-day strike so long as its members vote to take action in a ballot that goes out on Monday. One of the nation's biggest mortgage lenders says UK house prices are on track to drop 8% this year, the first annual drop since 2011, after declining for four months in a row. Halifax said its measure of property prices fell 1.5% last month after a 2.4% decline in November. Bet365 Group founder Denise Coates was paid about £272 million last year, retaining her title as one of the world's best-paid executives even as her gambling empire's earnings slumped. The online bookmaker's 55-year-old majority shareholder and co-CEO got about £58 million from dividends, as well as a £213 million salary for her work at the business for the year through March 2022, according to a UK registry filing. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie Pellet, thank you so very much. Uh, So next week for earnings in the U.S., we're going to kick off big bank earnings. That happens on Friday. So, a lot of attention is going to be tr- uh, paid towards trading activity. What kind of volatility were they able to capitalize on? What it means for FIC? What it winds up meaning uh, for credit trading, bond trading, commodities trading, equities trading, you name it. That's part of the story. Now, to get sort of an inside view of that, Guy and I, as well as Shanoi Basic, spoke to uh, a Trade Web. Um, and the new CEO, Billy Holt, he's been at the company for about 14 years as president. He now he newly minted CEO. He took the reins just a couple days ago. It's an electronic plating, trading platform that all these big guys wind up using. And here's part of this conversation. Last year was really almost like a tale of two stories. There was the first half of the year, actually, there were really robust volumes across the board. And then the second half of the year, as you guys know really well, I think volatility got to a place where there became kind of liquidity concerns around a couple of the core fixed income markets, the government bond market, the the TBA mortgage market, to say two. And then, to your point, Sonali, at the very end of the year in December, we felt like we really got back to a little bit of what I would describe as a sort of normal or natural cadence around fixed income trading. Volumes rebounded really well in government bonds, TBA mortgages, global swaps. And really, we saw really significant volumes um, in an important market, the high yield credit market and the IG credit market. So we feel really good about kind of where we're sitting now, early January. Um, We think this is a really good and beneficial market towards fixed income trading activity. And I'm excited, sort of my first week as, as CEO of the company, and thanks very much for having me on. You know, that fixed income boom that you're seeing, is it across the board? Is it unanimous? Or are there places where it'll take a while for pockets of activity to come back? Yeah, it's a great question. It's really like, you know, these markets are all so different and they're different enough in very specific ways that it's rarely like across the board, green light, green light. And so you definitely have different markets responding differently amongst this environment. I would say the mortgage market still has a way to go in terms of how it's functioning, in terms of volumes getting back to where they were, but really, really strong and good news about the credit markets. And for us, kind of across the board, really all through last 
last year, and we're really feeling very bullish about our ETF trading activity. We think that's a market that's really kind of in green light mode. Uh, hey, Billy, it's good to see you. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Um, now, I'm a commodity nerd, so, so this is a little bit biased, but anyone in the commodity market is going to tell you that commodities are trading poorly. There's not enough liquidity. Um, there's not enough interest in trading the commodity world. What are you seeing in actuality? What does it look like? Yeah, I think the commodity market has been, you know, absolutely struggling. And there's aspects, you know, of the commodity market. I'm kind of a, um, you know, a little bit of a mortgage nerd. So we're kind of nerds together. There are aspects of the commodities market that sort of are a little bit remind me of what's happening, you know, in the mortgage market where it just feels like it's a little bit of a one-way trade um, and it's a little bit of a dark moment. I think both of these businesses, the commodities business in general and obviously the mortgage market, have lots of history around resiliency. So I do feel like long-term both of these markets are going to have better days but I definitely would agree with you that we're you know we're in a challenging moment around both of those businesses. Billy if you're a mortgage nerd good morning it's Guy talk <laughs> me through what your expectations yeah. are for the US housing market this year. You know I, it's it's hard to be overly overly kind of bullish on on kind of housing with this level of kind of uncertainty. Um, you know, my general instinct is back to the sort of, you know, the way that market trades is, you know, it's important to get more, more market makers in that business. As you guys know really well, the European banks have historically been very strong in the mortgage market. The Credit Suisses, the Deutsche Banks, the UBSs, et cetera. They've kind of receded from that business over the last few years. And I do think it's important that that mortgage, that the mortgage market evolves from just the JP Morgans, the Goldmans, the banks. Bank of America's, the cities, and the Morgan Stanleys, and there becomes more more participants in that market. And in some ways, it winds up mimicking some of the evolution that's happened in the government bond market, where you have more of the high frequency firms participating and adding liquidity to that business. Hey, Billy, I think that will help the market and housing. You mentioned liquidity being a concern at times, and we haven't seen the worst of it. That that's the reality when it comes to tightening, uh, as far as quantitative tightening. So, how much is liquidity still a concern and I'd love for you to get specific on where it could become mostly a concern. I, you know, I was I was sort of watching your guys show a, a you know a ton, not surprisingly, during the pandemic, and it was really interesting just to see how the government bond market became kind of like frontline news around how that market is operating, right? What are the bid covers when someone's trying to sell? There's a buyer. What is the price below the buyer? How is the market really operating on a moment-to-moment -moment basis? Um, and those are the really kind of important things, right? Like there's all this evolution that's happened through electronic trading, but at the end of the day, a seller needs a buyer. A buyer needs a seller. Um, and these markets need to operate at a very high level for the whole system to work. My general feeling is there's been some like very interesting, I know you had um, PIMCO on just before me. There's been very interesting news, for example, in the government bond market about two things. One is um, the evolution of all-to-all -all trading in government bonds, and the other is you know, real news around the potential of central clearing in government bonds. My general instinct is those are two really strong developments around this concern and issue around liquidity, and TradeWeb is very supportive of both. 
That was Billy Holt, the CEO of TradeWeb. It was a really fascinating conversation. He also had lots of fun opinions about um, going back to work and Wall Street getting their butts back in the office. He's like, if you're at home watching this right now and you work for TradeWeb, go back to the office. So it's nice and refreshing to have somebody uh, say that. Um, Just as we were playing that for you, I just want to focus on Tom Barkin. He is giving a speech and answering some reporter questions. And he's saying things like, you need to keep forward-looking real rates positive. Um, Of course, he's focusing on inflation, not necessarily the absolute level of Fed funds rate, really looking at the recent inflation trends um, that we've seen. Anyway, that just is adding on to the Fed speak that we've seen over the last few hours. We'll get you more on that in just a moment. Okay, coming up, we're going to go to D.C. In the fascinating takedown of want-to-be House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, we are on the 12th vote. We'll get the latest. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Okay, let's get to D.C. here. The 12th vote is underway uh, for Speaker of the House. Uh, Kevin McCarthy does not have enough votes as of yet. Um, Let's get the latest count here. Laura Davison, congressional reporter for Bloomberg, joins us now. What's the count? What are the negotiations like? Well, the count is literally changing as we speak. They're voting one by one on the floor. But we did see the first sign of progress in the uh, four days of talks. Uh, two members, uh, Dan Bishop and Breakin, both um, changed their vote. They had previously opposed McCarthy and now are supporting McCarthy. This is the result of um, some late talks last night where they uh, detailed more uh, rules changes to the House procedures, gave uh, some of these members, some of the things they were asking for regarding the budget, regarding committee assignments. Um, the details of this deal are still being worked out. Uh, there was a call this morning with all Republicans and unclear exactly how many support uh, this deal. But this is at least a sign um, in, in a, a sign of progress for McCarthy. So do we know is it, if it, what he gives up, though, is the ability for one person to have a, basically a vote of no confidence for him, doesn't that basically just effectively neuter that position forever? It really makes it very difficult for this person to govern. Um, so the, the the rule change here for saying that it, you know any single person could call, any single Republican could call, um, that's only in effect for two years. Uh, you okay. know, it's something that could change going forward. But once you set that precedent, it's really hard going forward. And you know, McCarthy or whoever is speaker is going to have that axe over their head every single move they make. Yeah, I mean, it's really. I mean, at some point, I was um, Peggy Union wrote. I think it was in the journal. Yeah, it was in the journal today. That basically, at some point, you step aside for the good of the country and you just do what's best, not just what you want. Um, Is there any indication that that will happen for Kevin McCarthy or is this just going to be, you know, election by a thousand paper cuts? This is really um, kind of the, the question of the day, and there's starting to be some rumblings from some moderate Republicans um, and even some, you know, more uh, middle of the road Republicans, mainline uh, Republicans who are who are concerned that uh, McCarthy has given up too much and that the next two years are just going to be completely ungovernable. The speaker is going to have no power and they're basically going to be held hostage. These 20 or so hardliners who are requesting these changes. So if that ha- so where does it then go from here? Like if if we have two members now over to his side, so how many more does he actually then need? And then the consistent concessions, if the moderate Republicans get mad at that, what do they do? So we, actually, we are up to four who have, who have now switched just from oh, the time okay. that we've been talking. Um, so you know, the, the news is shifting quickly. Um, but what's important to know here, McCarthy has 20 who are against him. He can only lose four. So there's, you know, 16 more or so that he needs uh, to, to win over um, 
So it, it's very difficult math for him going forward. Um, there's some games that can be played if some members vote present that don't want to vote for him, but uh, you know want this uh, want this to end. Um, that could happen. It's unclear that today is going to be the day that this gets decided. Um, you know, already members are signaling this could spill into the weekend. Well, so what happens over the next 48 hours? So they'll continue to vote. Um, basically, the House can do two things right now. They can either vote for Speaker, you know, where all the members have to be there, sit in their chair, stand up and announce their vote, um, or they can motion to adjourn. Um, Democrats have been um, not willing to give um, Republicans uh, votes to motion to adjourn. They want them to go through this process. Um, you know, at some point, everyone gets tired. And, you know, like last night around 930 or 830 or so, they wrapped it up. But the schedule here has been so in flux. No one really knows minute to minute what's going to happen. Um, but w- really, the action on the floor is sort of the sideshow. What is uh, what, where the real action is is down um, in these conference rooms in the Capitol. Members are hashing out this deal, and that's where we'll see the progress. Um, and if there is more progress going forward today, do we, in essence, have a two, three, or four party system in the U.S. right now? Well, right now, uh, and it does. It, there's essentially three parties that are important, or three factions of people that are important um, in the Capitol right now. You have Democrats; they control the Senate. Uh, you have uh, Republicans, and they're really split. You have sort of your, you know, the the majority of Republicans, Kevin McCarthy being, you know, representing being the head of that group. And then the more conservative Republicans, sometimes called the House Freedom Caucus. And because of the really tight majorities that uh, Republicans in the House have, they're a very important voice. We spent a lot of the past two years talking about how Joe Manchin and his wants and needs were controlling Democrats in the Senate. That's really the same situation we now have here in the House. I mean, I guess after us making so much fun of you guys over in the UK, I can't blame you for not making fun of us, to be honest. Laura, thanks a lot. Laura Davison uh, joining us there. Coming up, we'll get back to the Fed. We'll get back to the markets. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Okay, let's get to the jobs number here and just go through some and recap some of the highlights. Um, You had the U.S. economy adding 223,000 jobs, uh, the unemployment rate falling to 3.5%. On the upside, you had average hourly earnings year-on-year basis falling to 4.6%. The labor force participation rate taking up just a little bit. Then fast forward about an hour and a half and we get the ISM uh, services data. So that actually falling below 50 for the first time since May of 2020. Uh, the employment below 50. So prices and services paid finally, finally rolling over. Uh, and new orders firmly around uh, 45. So all of that leads you to an equity rally and a sell-off in the bond market. So let's get to it with Ira Jersey, Bloomberg Intelligence Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist. Is all of this, Ira, worth the 18 bips we're seeing on the two-year? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's so much of the market. I talked to to you about this before, Alex, is, is about positioning. And there were a lot of people who were saying, oh, the, the Fed's still going to be hiking. They're going to hike another, you know, 75, 80 basis points, and that mean, or 100 basis points, and that means that two-year yields need to be somewhat higher. Now, our, our estimate of fair value for two-year yields is around 4.5%. Of course, that was before some of the data that we saw. So it, it's not a huge surprise to me that going into the weekend, people want to, you know, maybe take off some short positions, wind up, uh, you know, going in flat. So, so I do think that a lot of this is just people getting out of their flattening positions mm-hmm. and people uh, getting out of their short short end positions. Okay, so my read through was like, oh, well, look, you have the market that thinks now the Fed can kind of downshift. It, w- is there any truth to that interpretation? 
Yeah, so, so I do think, uh, I mean, we, we've been thinking for a month or so now, basically since the last uh, Fed meeting, that, uh, that, that the Fed would start try to downshift to 25 basis points. So the way that I describe it is I think the, the Fed now is in calibration mode. So they, they're close enough to where they want to get to that, and they're not sure if it should be 5% or 5 and a quarter, 5 and a half, that they can downshift to 25 basis point moves now and then wait to see how the economy develops over the next three to six months before they ultimately stop hiking interest rates. Um, I, I do think what's really interesting, and one of the big reasons why two-year yields have been selling off, is not because the market's not the market's pricing out significant hikes in, in January or March, but what it's done is it said, okay, we think they're going to they're going to cut interest rates more later in the year. So, uh, so instead of only a 25 basis point or 30 basis points of cuts being priced, now we're pricing in two full cuts by the end of the year. And uh, you know that that's basically I think the market's acknowledgement that hey, the Fed's almost done, but we're going to have a weak uh, and maybe a weaker economy than we thought later in the year. But is it, I mean, is the data pointing to that? A weaker economy later in the year? Well, certainly pointing to a slowdown. I mean, when you look slowdown, at a lot sure. of forward, uh, you know, the, the forward-looking indicators. And look, I, ISM services, like, uh, you know, someone asked me, an investor asked me last year, look, if you only had one data to choose from to hmm. determine where the economy is going forever and then, and what would you be using? And I said it would be ISM new orders, because it almost always is a, is a, a significant leading indicator for the markets. And if those data, if, if the services numbers uh, or and the ISM manufacturing new orders numbers go below 45, that's a signal that we're going to be in a recession over the next couple of quarters. And both of them right now are at 45 or 45.2 in the ISM services that mm-hmm. new orders came out this morning. So so we're very close to recession territory and, and signaling for recession. So even if we do have a soft landing, it's going to feel very much like a recession. I, I point this to Alex, like 1994 was the one time maybe you could point to where you had, um, where you had a soft landing, where the Fed engineered that, but it was still felt very much like a recession. I can say that because I had a problem finding a job back then. So, um, you know, no, fair enough. <laughs> uh, like, you know, it's, it's going to feel like a lot like a recession, even if NBR doesn't say it is. No, no, f- fair enough. Um, and if it, if it quacks like a duck, it is a duck, even if it doesn't say it's a duck. I mean, at the end of the day, you can make that argument. Um, so with this all in mind, what kind of bond environment are we going to be in now? Like, are we going to have a a reset and then back to the old normal? Are we going to have a new normal? Are we going to have the world where bonds make you returns? Like, what's it going to be? Yeah, well, I think we're, because of how drastic the sell-off was in 2022, I think now you're going to have a bit less of the, um, you know, everything is moving in the same direction. So, you know, we had the, the quantitative easing trade, which was, you know, bonds rally and equities rally. And then you had the last year was the quantitative tightening trade where bonds sell off and equities sell off. So I think you know, now with with the likelihood that once the Fed starts to cut, they're going to stop quantitative tightening and probably not be doing quantitative easing, that will get back into the normal environment where, you know, equities, uh, equities uh, uh, you know, rally significantly and you wind up having bond market maybe sell off because of the idea that you'll have, um, you know, you'll have a decent economy. Um, so, so I do think that we'll get back to that normality at some point during the course of this year. Um, I, I think for right now, you know, the market, the rate market really is probably going to be range bound for the next three, four, five months, mm-hmm. um, be, just because until we get a better direction of where the economy is actually headed, the, the market just going to be playing at all of these numbers, and you're just going to see mm-hmm. a lot of volatility with not a lot of direction. Right, which to your point, positioning into the numbers and then the move that we're seeing right now. Um, do you think we see five, a five handle on the two-year at some point in this whippy world? 
I, I don't. Um, you know, like I said, I think you know four and a half percent is about fair value given where where we think that the the, the Fed's going to hike to to five and a quarter percent and kind of leave it there for the rest of the year. So so I think we're we're probably in the two year in a trading range between call it you know broadly speaking four percent to four and a quarter four and a half. Um, four and a quarter, probably the midpoint of, of whatever range we end up in. And, you know, the 10 years is interesting, too, because we had that big sell-off at the end of the year, um, and now mm-hmm. we've rallied back significantly. So 340 to 390, I think, is a range that will probably hold again for the next few months at least. And then, uh, you know, once we get additional information, additional data, maybe then we'll start to trend a little bit. And, and I think more than likely we'll rally in the 10-year, um, you know, before the end of this year. Um so what are you looking for for next week? We don't have a ton of time, but what's going to be like an indicator for you? Well, it's obviously CPI. I mean, that's the only number really next week that's going to matter. So so, so CPI, okay. And you think the trade's going to be what? You think we're going to be anticipating a bit of a rollover? Yeah, I, I think that if if we wind up getting numbers where the year-on-year figure gets below 6.5%, we're going to see a pretty good rally, particularly in, in that front end of the curve. And I think we test 4% on the two-year in, in, in a pretty quick fashion. Awesome stuff. Ira, I love it. I love how you get me so jazzed about the bond market. That's like one of the things I like best most about you. Um, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Ira Jersey of Bloomberg Intelligent. Intelligence. Well, that was a week. It was only four days, but it felt like a month. Guys, have a great weekend. We will catch you back here on Monday, a busy week next week. Earnings and CPI. This is Bloomberg.